there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Ready, camera three, one center up. Good evening, I'm David Walker. And I'm Lois Hart. Now here's the news. President Carter has arrived in Fort CNN Wayne. went on the air for the very first time, marking the beginning of the age of the 24-hour news cycle. The U.S. brought back the draft. David Letterman's first TV show for NBC prepared in its daily morning time slot. And the Mets drafted a young Daryl Strawberry. Finally in L.A., Richard Pryor set himself on fire at an explosion while freebasing cocaine. And you know something I noticed? When... You run down the street on fire. People will move out of your way. Right? They don't fuck around. They get their fuck out your way. Except for one old drunk, right? He was like, hey, buddy, can we go? Like, Come on, pal, just slow up, okay? Just a little off the sleeve, what is it? All of that chaos, it's clear that June 1980 was one hell of a month. Hi, this is Scott Weinberg, and I am here live in person with Drew McWeenie. Normally we do this over Skype or whatnot, but this time I'm in Los Angeles. So Drew and I are recording. We're literally a foot away from each other. By the end of this podcast, depending on how things go, if we really start agreeing towards the end here, there may be some making out, folks. This this is very exciting stuff. It would be like Lady and the Tramp with a microphone instead of spaghetti and a meatball. <laughs> um. It's funny, I was very excited about the May 1980 podcast before we did it because I knew like it was a really big month. There were a lot of classics that came out that month. Yep. 1980 had a weird summer, and it's all over the place. There's a lot of different types of things that came out this month. It runs the gamut from completely obscure, forgotten stuff to big, fat classics. Uh, and now we're going to start with one that I think that you like considerably more than I do. I think it's safe to say, or at least you appreciate it more than I do. I call it Saturday Night Cowboy. What do you call it? Urban Cowboy. They were strangers when they met. What you've done to me. They were strangers when they married. Leaving me to They live in the New West, where the myth of the cowboy lives on. The dream of being one, or finding one. John Travolta, Deborah Winger. Urban Cowboy, rated PG. Let's just say somebody took Saturday Night Fever and said, if we do it with country music instead of disco music, and then they went about making exactly that, I am going to, maybe I'll get some grief for this, but I think Urban Cowboy is a borderline terrible film. You're not wrong about the fact that it's a very cynical movie. It obviously began as Saturday Night Fever and was supposed to be the country version of that. It even started the same way from a magazine article that somebody read about the right, right. the bull thing and about what was happening in Texas. 
you know, the movie begins with literally the same scene as Saturday Night Fever where he comes downstairs and his family's there and they bring breakfast. And in Saturday Night Fever, it's it's dinner and it's spaghetti and they're all Italians and they're wife beaters. And it is the most shorthanded, stereotypical version of an Italian dinner. And here he comes down and it's, hey, you want some biscuits and gravy for breakfast? And he's got his hat on and he puts the dip in while he's in the car. They go overboard with these southern stuff. So it is so clearly that they're chasing that. Having said that, I think that James Bridges is a better director than oh, much than a junky sort of cynical phone in. And I think what he gets right is Deborah Winger. James Bridges was the one that fought for Deborah Winger. Famously, Robert Evans on this movie said she wasn't hot enough to be in the film and tried to fire her. And Bridges was the one that fought for her. And I think Bridges and Deborah Winger do really good work. She's, from the very beginning, she's really dedicated. And she's building a character, and she's trying really hard to find interesting grace notes to play. And often, it looks like Bridges punctuates a scene by just cutting the winger and giving her the last line in whatever it is. She's a fantastic actress throughout the 80s who has salvaged many a terrible screenplay. And she is charming and likable in the film. Uh, but I think that that just, she works as a, a counterpoint to how tiresome and generic and predictable the rest of the movie is. Well, it wasn't supposed to be Travolta, though. Originally, this was written for uh, Dennis Quaid, and Travolta was supposed to be doing American Gigolo. And then at the last moment, Travolta ended up picking this screenplay instead. American Gigolo had to get refigured, and that's when Richard Gere got that. But you can see how clearly American Gigolo would have fit Travolta at that same time as well. Like, it was the same kind of character thing that he was chasing that Saturday Night Fever would have led to very naturally. One thing I really dislike about Urban Cowboy, and it's not necessarily the film's fault, it kind of kickstarted the whole line dancing for, you know, suburban middle-aged moms, including mine, oddly enough. Maybe that's why I don't like this movie. I See, my, my dad was a big country music fan, and I was raised in a... I'm not a country fan myself, and I think it's because I was inundated with it, but the year that this was released, 1980, I was living in Texas. We were living in Conroe, which is just outside Houston. So my parents actually went to Gillies. The The world of Irving Cowboy was something my dad absolutely was part of, like fascinated by at the time. And I think for him, my dad was raised on John Wayne movies and the chance to go out and dress like a cowboy and be a cowboy on his night off, I think was very potent for him at the time. And the soundtrack was fucking gigantic and was everywhere. And yeah, there were like at least four or five monster, omnipresent radio hits on this album, which, you know, like it or not, these are giant cultural moments for huge groups of people. And Urban Cowboy was a very real thing. Scott Glenn makes it work. Deborah Winger makes it work. The big, the film's big mistake, you notice there's one scene in the movie where Travolta gets to dance, where he has sort of a line dance solo. You realize in that moment, the movie should have been about country dancing, not about the bulls. Because the bulls are ridiculous. Yeah, and yeah, it's a yeah. weird fad that went away very quickly. Travolta as a country dancer would have made more sense. Right, but country dancing is not impressive like Saturday, like disco dancing is. Look at the nonsense, though. Look at the dance floor in this movie. I couldn't do any of what these guys are doing, and they're doing it fairly routinely with their women. There is a really aggressive country line dancing thing that was happening. Right, that, right, but a country line dancing is that that involves, you know, everyone. There's That's not Travolta being the center point of they attention. Could have, they could have made it the center point, though. They could have done it. They could have refigured it. I think a Travolta musical would have been the smarter way to do Drew, this. Drew, I think you can agree that without Urban Cowboy, there would never have been Achy Breaky Heart. True or false? I don't even know how to answer that accusation. <laughs> um, 
Our next film uh, is not currently available uh, very easily. So if you want to find it, you'll have to do a little legwork. And I'm not sure it's worth the effort. Scott, would you yeah. like to introduce this one? This harkens back to stuff we were talking about in previous months, which is where flaccid all-star biblical comedies were a huge, uh, not huge, but were kind of a, a cottage industry unto itself. And I guess we could kind of blame Life of Brian for that. This one's called... Holy Moses. You all know the story of Moses? Well, this is the story of Herschel, who floated down the Nile with Moses. He might have had Moses' job, but he just didn't have the right connections. Holy Moses. The man was phenomenal. He split the Red Sea in half. I mean, sit down the middle, cover quick, and no excuses. Holy Moses. What a comedy. What a cast. Rated PG. Start soon at a theater near thee. Drew, what do you think inspired these low-budget, biblical-type comedies? I, I have a very complicated set of feelings about this, because Gary Weiss, I like Gary Weiss. Gary Weiss was a, a filmmaker who came in uh, in the early years of Saturday Night Live and did a lot of the film segments on that show. He had a lot of support while he was making Holy Moses. This was a big deal for him, and I think he's in some way leaning on the Mel Brooks model, but clearly... This is chasing the success of Monty Python's Life of Brian, which came out a year before, and I think it really falls flat. It has no teeth at all. It is very afraid to offend, and as a result, it is it not really sure what its yeah. target is. As if a you're comic. not a satire and you're not being a little bit ruthless, then you're just kind of a flat sitcom. My sister and I saw Holy Moses probably three or four times as kids, not exactly sure why. Uh, we first saw it because we were in love with people like Richard Pryor, Madeline Kahn, and John Ritter, all of whom make brief appearances in the movie. So as kids, we probably liked it. I know I revisited the film thanks to Encore Channel probably 10 or 12 years ago, and like lots of these comedies, man, I cringed my way through it. It is not good. You know, Dudley Moore was right in the middle of his most commercial phase right here because he had just done 10. He had done Foul Play. He was finally broken through in the American market. He wasn't just an English cult figure anymore. Any commercial success or potency this had was largely due to Dudley Moore being in it. And right after this, he went and did Arthur. So clearly he was on a run. This is the crater in the middle of that run, though. It is painfully unfunny. And there's a weird structure to it that makes me wonder if they had to reshoot or refigure this thing because it just wasn't working. Life of Brian has this brilliant conceit, which is... Brian is born in the stable next door to Christ, and his life runs parallel to him. And as a result, we get to sort of get a look at the world in which there could be a Jesus Christ. There could be a Messiah. It was a world that wanted Messiahs. It was a world where the politics of the time led to a feeling of oppression, and people wanted to be delivered. And we see that in the way the Romans are in Life of Brian. It's a brilliantly smart screenplay about the time and the place and the history that is not sacrilegious. This film it's just cheap vaudeville gags about the Old Testament, and it's kind of like winking and nudging you the whole time. It's just, it, does, it has no point of view. When Dudley Moore was on, he was funny as hell. When Dudley Moore had subpar material, he was like a man lost at sea. He looks uncomfortable throughout it. He kind of looks like, like he's the second banana to whoever's on screen at the time. Yeah. And that's not what a star of a comedy should be. Look, here's the main reason that I'm offended by the similarity to Life of Brian, and it does offend me to some degree. I Often I can say, okay, it's of a genre, but Gary Weiss had just worked with Eric Idle on The Ruddles, All You Need Is Cash. 
So clearly Weiss knew who Monty Python was. Clearly he was aware of them. Clearly he had seen Life of Brian and was aware that they were working on it. When he started to work on this, I don't think that's accidental. Something about that really bothers me. Weiss basically went on to do a lot of TV stuff. He did a great Chris Elliott thing on Cinemax in the 80s called Action Family, which was amazing. And his second film, Young Lust, vanished into a, a legal morass limbo bankruptcy lawsuit thing with MGM and like literally never got released. So this was it for him. And for a guy that showed so much early promise, it's a real bitter disappointment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not even so much that it's, oh, it's another biblical comedy on the heels of much better satires. It is that Holy Moses is virtually Life of Brian, only instead of being in the shadow of Jesus, it's Dudley Moore in the shadow of Moses. So our next film is actually going to be part of an, a new feature here on the podcast, because for the first time since this has begun, I just couldn't find this movie. I, I couldn't lay my hands on it. And so I'm going to defer my actual review of the film to later in the series, because we're going to start a running list of movies that we can't find. And we want to start checking those movies off. If you guys can help us with that, great. Let me know. The movie that we're looking for this week is called Rough Cut, and it's a Burt Reynolds film. It hit at a moment where Burt was kind of trying to change his image because he had started as a good old boy, which he was in real life. You know, you look at him in Deliverance, you look at him in Gator, you look at him in those early films, and he is clearly a roughneck, backwoods, charming, hillbilly, good old boy. And Smokey and the Bandit was the pinnacle of that. That's like the, you know, shit kicker Star Wars, essentially. Urban Cowboy came out. And this That was kind of the moment where country was becoming mainstream. And at that moment, Burt Reynolds started to move away from it. Instead of embracing and becoming the king of that, he kind of ran from it the moment it became big. So this was supposed to be part of that. And it was based on a novel called Touch the Lion's Paw. And I have no idea how the book is, but the movie was supposed to be this light sort of caper comedy film. David Niven is the Scotland Yard inspector who's going to catch him. Burt Reynolds is the head of a jewel thief gang. And Leslie Ann Downs is the woman who joins the gang, but she's being blackmailed by Scotland Yard to set Burt Reynolds up and help them bust him. And then everybody betrays everybody. Yeah. I'd like to see it again. I know I saw it when it was much younger, and I remember zero about it. I know that I caught either all of it or a good portion of it on the Encore channel many, many years ago, at least 10 years ago. And if I had known that it was so difficult to track down, I perhaps would have paid more attention. Uh, rough cut. I know I watched it and it went in one ear and out the other. I couldn't tell you a thing about it. All One thing I could tell you is that it's directed by a guy who would go on to become one of my very favorite directors. Don Siegel, by the time he made this, Don was at the end of his amazing career. Don is a huge, huge director who we'll talk about later in the, the series as well, but he basically made Clint Eastwood. He was one of Clint's early and best collaborators. Now, the, uh, the movie was written by Larry Gelbart, although he doesn't have a credit on screen. He actually had his name changed on it there's an anecdote I found uh, from when Gilbert passed and somebody was writing about him. And uh, he wrote about when he was at a tribute ceremony for Larry Gelbart. And Larry was in the audience watching and a young fan came over and knelt down next to Larry and started telling him how much he meant to him and how much his work meant to him and how influential he was. And Larry was being very gracious and he was smiling, listening to the guy. And the guy finished by saying, uh, so that's why I'm very excited to be rewriting Rough Cut. Until that moment, Larry Gelbart didn't know he was being replaced as the writer on the movie. So sitting there, smiling at this kid, he said the fact that he could listen to this picture breaking the news to him that he'd been replaced on a writing project and just keep on smiling, shake his hand and wish him luck tells you all you need to know about what sort of mensch Larry Gelbart was. 
It's a great story. It is one of the few films that Gelbart did not take a credit on, so I assume it was not a great experience for him. Okay, so Scott, you're going to have to take the lead on this next one because um, it's actually it's up on YouTube for free if you want to see it. Uh, Troma has it posted. It's a really, really raw early Troma pickup. I have a confession to make. I, I get physically nauseous watching trauma films. They look like they smell bad. And yeah, I can't, I can't even articulate it, but they, they make me queasy. So I have trouble with them. And I made it through about 15 minutes of this. Scott, maybe you can do better because yeah. I think you are more acquainted with the children. Yeah, the children. They're normal, everyday children. They like playing games and having fun. They're like everybody's children, except that something terrifying happened to them. Pray you never meet them. Jenny, darling, is that you? Mama! The children, rated R. This is about a school bus that drives itself through a radioactive cloud, and the kids turn out to be homicidal maniacs. Now that sounds really fun, right? It was Xanax. <laughs> it is sleepy time tea. So dull. And yet, while dull, brutally ugly at the same time. Yeah. Um, like Drew mentioned, this was not a trauma. As far as I know, this was not a trauma in-house production. This was one of their earliest acquisitions. So it, it has a different kind of sleazy sheen. The Children plays like a grindhouse horror film in a way. It's very low budget, very tacky. It does go to some, you know, gruesome and potentially interesting places, but it's certainly no kind of hidden classic. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people may remember it fondly because they remember the VHS cover, but it is not a good horror film. And while we will uh, express some appreciation, I'm not a huge trauma fan either. I maybe I like them a bit more than Drew. You know, when you're digging back through their 80s releases, uh, this one like looks like an interesting curiosity until you get about an, uh, 40 minutes in and you're just like, this is just not good. So moving on, our next movie is a big movie star movie. And uh, it's directed by the big movie star who stars in the big movie star movie. And it's pretty darn good. It's called Bronco Billy. It's Clint Eastwood as Bronco Billy. Look, we're family. We fight together, we stick together. <laughs> He's a real live American hero. Wow, I love you, Bronco Billy. And you love Clint Eastwood as Bronco Billy, rated PG. This was a real departure for Clint Eastwood. One of the goals of the movie was, hey, I've done virtually every kind of cowboy movie there is. How could we bring a cowboy story into the immediately modern age? And what would a modern cowboy look like? And I think Clint Eastwood and his screenwriter came up with a clever way to extrapolate a traditional cowboy in today's society. And what's the hook they came up with, Drew? Bronco Billy runs a Wild West show. Dennis Hacken, the guy who is the writer on this, this was his second movie. The year before that, he'd done Wanted Nevada, which Peter Fonda directed and starred in uh, with Brooke Shields, which I don't even think you could release Wanda Nevada today because it's a love story between Brooke Shields and Peter Fonda and keep in mind, this was 1979, so she was like four or however old she was. Like It was one of those movies where Brooke Shields is in a wildly inappropriate adult relationship. But while Hacken wrote it, this feels super personal for Clint Eastwood. This feels to me like the movie where he finally started to drop the uh, genre sort of trappings and revealed something about Clint Eastwood, the filmmaker. Uh, you know, he'd already done a number of movies by this point, but this one definitely feels like, 
he is trying to find his place as a traditional cowboy, as a traditional filmmaker in a changing and much more modern landscape. And it also represents sort of that a subgenre that we see a lot of in this period. We're, we've done several of them already. We're going to do several more over the course of this year. But they're what I call running away with the circus movies. You know, somebody comes through town and then somebody else blows out of town with them and then has this adventure with them. And here it's Sandra Locke, who's the character who's trying to get away from her life and falls in with Bronco Billy and kind of gets her education about what life with Bronco Billy is like as he tries to hold his Wild West show together and keep them on the road. I think it's uh, one of his best non-action films. It, it showed a real promise of expansion beyond his persona or his brand a little warmer, a little sweeter, a little more accessible, a little funnier. I think Clint Eastwood fans, and I agree, absolutely love Bronco Billy. I think it's one of his best films of the entire decade. If you like Clint Eastwood and you haven't seen Bronco Billy yet, I would rec highly recommend you dig it up. Not that hard to find. It's a Warner title. I will say this. I, I am not a fan of Sandra Locke as an actor, and I find her... You know how a lot of people have a problem with Timbaland Doom because of Kate Capshaw? I have that problem with anything Sandra Locke is in. She drives me up a wall. And the difference is, I think Spielberg wanted her to be annoying in Temple of Doom. I think she's cast that way. Clint Eastwood obviously loves Sandra Locke and thinks she is a screwball comedian. And I do not find yeah, her very not funny to, or entertaining. Not to be unkind, but I never thought she was that interesting of an actor. Better in drama. Let's put it that way. Yes, better when she has to keep a straight face and yeah, she, not be playful. What does work for me is there's an overall sadness undercutting the comedy here. And I think he and Scatman Crothers have oh. phenomenal chemistry in this movie. Uh, Scatman Crothers brought him up in The Shining. He'll come up a lot more. Always good. Such a sheen of likable class to whatever he's in. Always real. Always believable. But Bronco Billy really does, and then later in the decade, the in any which way you can, you can clearly see him saying, all right, I can't just be this the, the squinting, tough guy gunslinger. I definitely need to expand. I need to be more accessible in a humor way, or I need a more humanistic way. And Bronco Billy was one of the first movies that showed he had a real depth of character. He wasn't just a tough guy. As a director, I think he'd been fascinating from the beginning, because his choices were never what you expected him to do. The Beguiled wasn't what you expected. High Plains Drifted. The outlaw Josie Wales is such a different Western than he had, than we'd seen from Leone or from Siegel or from any of the guys that he worked with. I think what clearly he was trying to do from the beginning was figure out how he was going to make his mark on the things that he had already been through with other directors. So it was him coming back and really trying to, to break these genres again that made him interesting. And I, I do think his career, once he's done, once he's put the, the punctuation mark at the end of it, is going to be a fascinating study in eras because he has not been the same filmmaker in any 10 years yeah. that you can pick out. Like the 90s are very different than the yeah. 80s, yep, yep. very different than the 2000s and since then. And that's just him. He's continued to evolve and change. Okay, so for this next film, check out this cast. Floris Leachman, Charles Martin Smith, John Vernon, Harvey Corman, Alex Rocco, Richard Jekyll. Ladies and gentlemen, Herbie Goes Bananas. 1969, the amazing love bug flashes across the screen. 1974, Herbie rides again. 
1977, Herbie goes to Monte Carlo. And now, summer 1980, Herbie goes bananas. The love bug meets a love boat. And Herbie's car roams through south of the border disorder in his most appealing adventure. Herbie goes bananas, rated G. Uh, this is from what I like to call the uh, We Don't Give a Fuck branch of the Walt Disney Studios. Yeah. Where this is the fourth film in a franchise. And... You look at how it evolved. In 1968, the first one was the, the director of Mary Poppins, Robert Stevenson, one of the heavy hitters for the Disney Studios. It has Dean Jones and Buddy Hackett, who are basically big movie stars in the live-action Disney realm. And they're the leads in the film. The second one, you still had Robert Stevenson directing. But Did you say they're the other James Franco and Seth Rogen of live-action Disney 80s films? There you go. <laughs> but the second film, you get saddled with Ken Berry playing Dean Jones, basically. And so already you've got a downgrade instead of the real deal. But they have the better villain. They Keenan win in the second film. The third film, you lose Stevenson, and they bring in Vincent McAviti, who is this insanely prolific guy. Honestly, he was a company man in every way. This is very much an example of Disney as product yeah. when they had reached that era. Because this guy came in a 60s TV. He did original Star Trek episodes. They gave him his break in features, though. He did Million Dollar Duck. He did Super Dad. He did Gus. He did The oh, Strongest Man oh, in the World. God, stop. That's this guy. <laughs> and he's doing TV at the same time. So he's doing Rockford Files and Kolchak. So they give him a giant sequel for them, which is The Apple Dumpling Gang Strikes Again. That's right. a big hit for the studio. So then they bring him on to do Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. And they bring him back for Herbie Goes Bananas, which is the final Herbie film in theaters until 2005. So did he kill the series? Disney killed this series, and you can almost feel bad because, like Drew said, at, the, at this era, the Disney live-action machine was just squirting stuff out, like Cat from Outer Space, and, you know, not all of them were terrible, but a lot of the Disney live-action of the late 70s was just rotten stuff. Yeah. You could tell that when, when Disney churned out a live-action sequel, it was because they were desperate for any kind of hit. And even as a kid, even as, like, an 8- or 10-year-old, I was like, this is whack. The original Herbie was based on a book, and that book had a really simple formula that the first three films follow, which is there's a guy, there's a girl, there's a sentient car who decides to get them together, and he makes things happen until they fall in love, and then there's a bad guy who wants to either steal the car or destroy the car. Terrible premise. So Terrible. Herbie's basically Christine. The guy gets the car, and then the car helps him get the girl, and it puts his life in order, and then he gets everything he always wanted. Herbie's fucking Christine, man. What? Name one person in the history of the world who has ever gotten laid because they owned a Volkswagen. Okay, there's a major plot point in this movie. Herbie adopts a Mexican child as his son. <laughs> he also becomes a master of disguise in this movie, where, like, Inspector Clouseau, Herbie gets in these elaborate get-ups... And pretends to be things like a police car and uh, at the airport uh, pretends to be directing traffic. Harvey Corman tries to murder Herbie by dumping him in the ocean in this movie. The 80s were fucking weird, man. Yeah, That's all there is to I'll it. I'll watch anything with Harvey Corman, but man, even I have my limits. All right. Uh, next up, let's, let's move on to the movie that I thought we were actually reviewing last time. I got this confused with Carney. This is the Alan Rudolph movie, Rhodey. Once in a generation, it happens. A motion picture experience so vast that it redefines the art of American cinema. Now there is... Rhodey. Rhodey, the story of a boy and his equipment. 
from United Artists, rated PG. Soundtrack available on Warner Brothers Records. Roadie starts Friday. This is a, a strange film that delves into uh, what you would arena rock culture. The intent is to be wacky and funny, but also to kind of give a somewhat honest but yet satirical look at the world of touring rock stars i i don't get this movie i here's the thing meatloaf is such a weird fucking choice in this film meatloaf looks like he's from outer space in this film he is as unpolished and as unready for a close-up as anybody i've ever seen put in front of a camera it's something else alan rudolph rolls the dice on meatloaf here and it does not work and he's playing a character that i really think is not him this genius who can fix anything that's mechanical yeah the ultimate the ultimate roadie because he can fix anything yeah but he's he's living in a small texas town with his dad inventing things in this house and you've got art carney riding around in this super mechanical wheelchair at the beginning and it's so bizarre for the first 15 minutes that you don't know what kind of film you're even watching and it's almost like peewee's playhouse the world that they live in and then he runs into that tour bus and the moment this girl gets off the tour bus, Meatloaf is hopelessly in love and he's going to run away with them and he's going to join the Rock and Roll Road Show and become the world's greatest roadie. And the girl, it drove me crazy for the first 15 minutes I was watching her because I knew I knew her from somewhere and I could not place her. So I finally broke down. I opened IMDb and Khaki Hunter, sure enough, Wendy Williams from the Porky's films. And that's really the only other thing I know her from. Alan Rudolph has... Made a lot of good films, also made some pretty forgettable and weak films, and I would definitely categorize this in the more forgettable phase. Well, he just has this wacko sensibility. You know, there was a period where Alan Rudolph was attached to make The Far Side, and he had a deal with, I think it was New Line and Gary Larson, and they were going to do it, and, and he had a script for it, and he knew how he was going to approach it. That's maybe not such an insane choice, because Alan Rudolph has always, to me, seemed like a guy who was at his best in little five-minute fragments. Mm. He was an Altman disciple. He trained under Robert Altman. Robert Altman basically taught him everything. Rudolph, I think, emulated him in some ways, but did not have any of Altman's taste, necessarily. This movie is a mess. It's a very early film by him. What, what, There's no control. It's mainly not notable at this point for the appearances by the rock stars. Um, her character, Lola Bouillabais, wants to give her virginity to Alice Cooper, and that's the main thread of the movie is, is she going to get to Alice, and is she going to get him to fuck her? That's what the movie's really so about. Vulgar. That's the ticking clock. Surprisingly, considering a Blondie and Cheap Trick and, and uh, Alice Cooper and other people in this film, it's not a very memorable soundtrack. It, it's not like Urban Cowboy, where I believe the album could work on its own and stand alone just as a record. And I don't even think the performances they get from the people, the little bits and pieces we see in the film, are memorable. This yeah. is pretty much just a miss. Uh, films like Rhodey, they used to tout on their posters all the different rock acts that were used in there, all the songs that were used in their movies. And by and large, when you look back over these movies that, that highlighted their soundtrack so much, a lot of them are hard to find specifically because they had so many different artists on their soundtrack. And then when you go to get re renew the rights for DVD or Blu-ray or VOD release, all of a sudden it's exorbitant amount of money. And why uh, we can't pay X amount of money to release roadie because we're never going to sell that many copies. And then these films kind of vanish in a way. You know, companies like Shout Factory are important. We're going to talk about another film a little later and a company that put that out. And I'm going to say this again. Without these companies, we lose giant chunks of movie history. And while I may not be recommending Rhodey, uh, I'm glad it's available.
Oh, yeah. I don't wouldn't recommend you see it necessarily, but I, I'm glad it still exists. Same company, Shout Factory, also put out our next film, and they did oh. a lovely Blu-ray of it. And I got to say, the Blu-ray is gorgeous, even if the film is horrible. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Benchley's The Island. For 300 years, a terrifying secret has been kept from the outside world. The Island, the super thriller from the author of Jaws and the Deep. The Island starts Friday at a theater near you. Rated R. Oh, okay. Uh, Now, The Island is a movie that I, with very little additional research, I could probably write a book on. I like it more than Drew. Okay. Michael Caine and his son are uh, on a trip together. They get kidnapped by pirates who have been uh, living outside of the public eye, completely unknown for 200 years, 300 years, living on an island through inbreeding based on a Peter Benchley novel, who, of course, wrote Jaws. And it's a great premise for a movie. You know, what if these people had been off the grid for all these years and somehow managed to survive and never be found? Uh, and are now, you know, stalking the Caribbean, killing people. There are like four or five moments in the island where it's clear that somebody at Paramount said, yeah, this is pretty close to a horror movie and really graphic violence in these horror movies is really popular right now. They, I don't know if they were reshoots or if it was planned from the beginning, but there are four or five moments of brutally shocking, ugly violence. How is this a Michael Ritchie movie? I don't know. Okay, because this is this is Michael Ritchie. Yeah. Fletch, semi tough, the bad news bears, the Wildcats, the candidate, the, the couch trip, the Smile. survivors. Love Michael Ritchie. Miss him. Great comedy director. Did downhill racer before this. Not a comedy, but but he mostly was known for comedy throughout the nineteen eighties. And this is I would say inarguably Michael Ritchie's most brutal and violent film. It's not his worst film. He made he made a couple of, of really bad ones later in his career, but this is close. Here's the thing. Peter Benchley, not a good writer. Nope. He wrote one decent book, and that book was made great largely because the adaptation was very liberal, and that was Jaws. I don't get the deep at all. I truly don't get it. I don't get what the... I, it's, it's drug smuggling and, an, and a barracuda, and uh, okay... And this is another one where I don't get it. It's supposed to be his Bermuda Triangle movie because this is the explanation for the Bermuda Triangle. It's pirates and the pirates have been out there and they've been getting people. But the pirates are so laughably goofy in this movie. David Warner is their leader and David Warner is brilliant character actor. Love David Warner. Sure, sure he's a brilliant character actor. This is a ridiculous character. It's a ridiculous film. And the, the fathers and sons thing, because the whole reason David Warner is grooming Michael Caine's son is because his own son is kind of a piece of shit. And so his own son gets really jealous of Michael Caine's son. Michael Caine spends almost an hour of this movie with his hands bound and doing nothing. It's a passive nightmare for an actor. But I will give it this. Even if I don't like anything else about this movie, the big finish where Michael Caine takes a 50 caliber machine gun and kills about 140 people in three minutes is insane. I, I, yeah, there's just something. It's bad, but I can't help but be fascinated by it and therefore entertained. 
I really hate using the phrase guilty pleasure because if you like a movie, whether it's good, bad, or, or cheesy, you should not feel guilty for that pleasure. But if I did use the phrase guilty pleasure, it would probably apply to a movie like The Island, which is partially scary, partially beautiful to look at just because of the location, and partially just inept and ugly. <laughs> Our next movie is about Charlton Heston and Brian Keith, who are both beaver crazy. In The Mountain Men. Actually, that may be the most horrifying description of a film I've ever given on this podcast. The West wouldn't have been the same without them. Engine! Engine! They snuck off on me. That's what engines do for a living. They had their share of danger. They had their share of women. Reckon you're gonna keep her? Running Moon, why don't you go home? I go with you. Reckon I got any choice? The mountain men, the wilder the country, the wilder the men. It is written by Fraser Heston, and it is about two old school trappers who believe that there is this valley where there's abundant beaver and they'll be able to get all the pelts they can manage and they'll be able to write retire and that's paradise and that's where they're going to live that's the plot of every teen sex comedy ever made and it is played sort of broad and sitcommy and i have oh do it with a straight face that could be interesting nope it's not that movie and it's not good charlton heston who i already think is one of our great over-actors. Oh, God, um, don't even. He chews scenery so aggressively in this movie, and Brian Keith, God bless him, goes along for the ride. And the two of them are intolerable 10 minutes in. It is an endurance test. I do not recommend The Mountain Men. It is a, a relic of late 70s studio thinking. It doesn't feel like a movie of its time. It feels like something that was made 15 years too late, and even then, it would have been out of date when it was made originally. Our next movie is a very obscure movie within a movie thriller, horror, slight horror, more of a thriller, called Effects. Uh, this is a very Pittsburgh movie, and <laughs> it is um, from that moment where Pittsburgh was kind of trying to make a noise on the, on the national film scene. And, you know, George Romero had broken through. He was the guy. This movie was made by guys who were sort of in George Romero's orbit. They aren't directly Romero's guys in most cases, but John Harrison is the big linchpin here. And Harrison, uh, if you know Romero's work at all, then you know his name from Tales from the Dark Side and Creepshow and Day of the Dead. And um, he's The man in, of many actor, producer, composer. Yeah. He was in Knight Riders as an actor. Yeah, he's done like, a he's, lot of, he's on, has had an eclectic career. And Tom Savini is in this. Woo! And did the makeup effects for it. So that, that is the most direct connection as well. Um, this is part of that subgenre of horror films about whether or not snuff movies are real. Yeah, there was a, a period there in the Grindhouse and, and, and B-horror movie era where snuff films were being uh, explored. There was, of course, the infamous Spanish film Snuff, which is not a snuff film, but it made money for several years by insisting that it was. And then you would think, well, all right, we want to make a film about the snuff film story, but, but the filmmakers are sh not sure if the project they're working on is actually going to have real kills in it or not. Uh, Drew and I watched this last night, 
And one thing we thought was very interesting is that it gives you a clear indication of what low, low budget productions looked like in 1979 and 1980. And just for that reason alone, effects might be worth digging up for historians just to see what a skeleton crew looked like in 1980. Now, I'd, I'd like to also point out real quickly that the only reason I was able to show this to Scott last night is because of Don May at Synapse Films. Um, Don was the one that tracked this down, got the rights, uh, did the restoration of this thing. Don is one of those guys who works on the fringe of the fringe of the fringe, picking up movies that no one else would touch, no one else would put out, but that fans of the genre want to see as completists. And this is one of those films that was rescued from obscurity by somebody. Not Yeah, probably not obscurity, just complete oblivion. Yeah. Yeah. It's because of guys like Don May that the obscure becomes available. And I, I really I want to give him a special shout out for putting effects on DVD. I yeah. think that's a really cool thing to have done. Our next movie is, oddly, also a movie about filmmaking. A much, much better film. <laughs> uh, and this was this was a sort of out-of-nowhere surprise for a lot of people in 1980. It was produced independently, but then it was picked up for release by 20th Century Fox and became a pretty significant cult hit. It only made $7 million in the theater, but it got nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor, which seems inevitable when you look at the work by... Peter O'Toole as Eli Cross in The Stuntman. Trapped by the madness, the danger, the love, the lunacy, the power, the frenzy, the fear. Who are you? The Stuntman. I want this shot! An outrageous leap into the unexpected. I, when I was younger, did not get it. Didn't know, was it a thriller? Was it a, a, a crime story? Was it a dark comedy? And even as a kid, dark comedy, don't know if I'd ever really get dark comedy that well. Uh, but this is from Richard Rush, uh, and, and it stars Peter O'Toole as a guy who chances onto a film set and uh, convinces everybody that he is a renowned stuntman, and they all fall for it, and he becomes a star. Well, and it's... It's also, it's kiss, kiss, bang, bang, because he's on the run from the cops. He's a fugitive. The one person who knows the truth about him is the director, Eli Cross. Because he knows that this guy is hiding from the cop, and because the real stuntman died, and that's why Steve Railsback was able to take his place, Eli Cross kind of has his own puppet that he can do anything with. And for a director to be able to tell a stuntman to do something, and no, no matter what, he'll do it in front of the camera, it's godlike power. And it is a frequently brutal indictment of the Hollywood system, Hollywood politics, filmmaking in general, acidic satire of the movie making machine. It's our second Alex Rocco movie of the month. Okay. Alex Rocco popping up everywhere this month. Uh, early, early work from the great Barbara Hershey. The scene that I want to single out as the moment that I think is the, the greatest thing in The Stuntman, and it's the greatest moment Richard Rush ever directed, is the moment where... They've shot this very explicit sex scene with her character. Peter O'Toole's character, Eli, has her parents come to the set. And while they're there, he brings them in to see dailies, and he shows her, shows her parents that explicit sex scene. And we watch them watch it. And we watch, and we see that he, he says, oh, I'm so sorry, like it was an accident, and it's not. He's obviously doing it to get a reaction. Then the next day... When he's directing a scene with her and she can't get to that place where she's emotionally breaking the way he needs, he waits until they've done several takes and she's kind of exhausted and punchy. And he tells her that her parents saw the scene 
and he tells her how ashamed they were. And he tells her about their reaction. And we watch it break her. And yeah. as soon as he sees it break her, he rolls the camera because he got what he wanted. And that indictment of how a director can manipulate and push and cajole and get something out of an actor is, I think, Rush's most revealing and interesting moment as a filmmaker. Yeah, and, and uh, it really is, like I said, it's a scathing indictment of the ego in Hollywood. And obviously, this is a worst-case scenario. The Peter O'Toole character is, you know, hopefully not indicative of what actual directors would do. But I believe that in the 70s in particular, Richard Rush directed this from a place of knowledge. He, this was not just, I don't like directors and I'm going to poke fun of them. I think he has seen some ugly sexist shit on movie sets and his movie in this at least part of the stuntman is about how despotic and and horrific a director can become when he's unchecked and given just free reign over people's activities and what they do like ordering them what to do it's interesting there's a lot of parallels this month between films and and various things that we're doing there's similar themes or similar scenes our next movie actually ends just like the island with Elliot Gould using a 50 caliber machine gun to mow down an entire boatload of adorable Disney Moppets. Yeah. Oh, no, wait. No, I'm sorry. It doesn't. That would be awesome if it did. Ladies and gentlemen, this next film is actually a much more pedestrian and predictable Disney movie. The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. Oh, what a surprise. Here I was just thinking about you and... You pop up out of nowhere. Stow it, Stoney. I need a job or I wouldn't be here. I thought you'd never ask. Come, I'll show you. This is your lucky day. Okay, so, yeah, so now we're back again. I hate to sound like a broken record, but Disney didn't know what they were doing in 1980. You know, all you need to do is look at a list of their films and watch a handful of them, and... I hate to say it, but it's cheeseball movies like this. Uh, Elliot Gould plays a, actually quite good in the movie, <laughs> um, a, a uh, father um, of two who flies a plane of animals, and then there's a horrible storm, and they get shipwrecked, so it's kind of Swiss Family Robinson mixed with a whole bunch of animals, and then the only way they can get off the island is to turn the plane into a boat, and then, to, hence the title, The Last Flight of Noah's Ark, which is just such an awful title. I remember virtually none of this film, but even as a kid, it bored me stiff. Drew? Well, you, you, have, you have one of the, the plot things wrong. He's not the father. He's a pilot right, who right, gets right. hired. Genevieve Bujold, Bujold yes. is uh, a missionary who hires him to take her to start a missionary colony on an island. And these kids sneak onto the plane as castaways. Yeah. And it's Ricky Schroeder. <laughs> who at this point was already starting to become Ricky Schroeder. He'd done The Champ. He was recognizable by, by this point. I don't know what it was with Disney and kids who were castaways. That was a huge thing for them back then. This and Herbie Goes Bananas, both being in theaters the same month, seems like Disney in overkill mode. Like, I can't believe in one month there was enough room for two terrible Disney live-action family films. And frankly, the director of this, Charles Jarrett, was lucky to be working by this point because he directed the 1973 remake of Lost Horizon, which is an epic, jaw-dropping disaster of a movie. He did a lot of like historical drama stuff. He did the Jekyll, uh, he did the Jack Palance version of Jekyll Hyde for TV. His theatrical features were largely just Disney Drek, and he did one more after this, which we'll discuss next year, Condor Man. <laughs> You know, I could see a, a, a certain type of movie geek who says, wow, you know, there's so many uh, cheese balls in, in Disney's live action repertoire that I might want to 
dig through all these. And I would say that, you know, at least Last Flight of Noah's Ark has a, a kernel of a fun idea. I hope we're not being overly dismissive to this era of Disney films. No, this, this film's a bad film. It's fine. We can say that. This film's a bad film. Uh, all right. Speaking of bad films. Oh, boy. Our next one oh is boy. as if it looks like somebody saw Roger Vadim's Barbarella and said, we can make that only a lot smuttier and a lot tackier. And this film is called Galaxina. Ladies and gentlemen, Her Astronomical Highness. Galaxina, Queen of the Cosmos. Wired up. And fired up. To sweep the heavens against the forces of evil. Playboy's Playmate of the Year is Galaxina, rated R. You know, that same issue of Starlog that I mentioned last time, they had the Empire Strikes Back cover, um, also had a piece about Galaxina in it. And I really want to, you know, 10, I thought, okay, look, there's some sexy imagery here, and this is science fiction comedy, and I'm in for that. And also the phrase, former Playboy Playmate Dorothy Stratton, was used repeatedly in that Starlog article. And I don't think you can overstate the power of the phrase former Playboy Playmate on a 10-year-old in 1980. That was a hypnotic mantra. And uh, William Sachs, the guy who wrote and directed this, had done that earlier with Van Nuys Boulevard, which also starred Cynthia Wood, former Playboy Playmate. So certainly he got that. But this guy is a filmmaker utterly inept. If you look at the porn parodies that are being done today, maybe better filmmaking than Galaxina. Galaxina is junk. Uh, it's a terrible, smutty, gross, like, leering film. And um, it's not particularly clever when you look at, like, the sci-fi comedy angle. It was just clearly trying to ape Barbarella and better films um, and maybe trying to tap into, like, the, the Star Wars and the Flash Gordon, but will make it slightly raunchy or even very raunchy for adults. And, you know, Dorothy Stratton might not have ever become a big movie star. She was a Playboy Playmate and trying to transition into into acting. She probably would not have become a big movie star, but I can't help but whenever I come across one of her bad films, I, I just can't help but feel a little twinge of sadness for how, how young she died. I, I, I agree, but I also think it's this isn't James Dean. The, the films that we have of Dorothy Stratton's, this is the, you have to assess this as a performance. And as a performer, she may have been she may have had an amazing charisma in person. Peter Bogdanovich was obviously deeply scarred by her passing, believed in her, thought she was going to be a movie star. Um, there is no evidence in this film that she even understands she's in front of a camera. Yeah, not it a is, good actress. She, not a good actress. She, it's like she was shot with a tranquilizer dart that is slowly taking hold as the film progresses. The film is bizarrely structured. Captain Butt has a ship called the Infinity, and the first act of it is they just kind of fly around and they encounter a mysterious ship that runs away and then uh, this pilot tries to get in Galaxy in the sack, and he, she shocks him with her electrified force field crotch. Captain Butt eats an egg and then throws up an alien. And then the second half of the movie is a quest. And it's just so bizarrely poorly built that none of it makes sense or is even interesting and, or passingly funny. Like their idea of a sense of humor is there's an alien wearing a blue Federation shirt with upside down pointy ears named Mr. Spot. And if that made you laugh, then God have mercy on your soul. Yeah, uh, Universal had it out on VHS when we were kids. You can probably find it now. Uh, There's a DVD. Yeah, and like Drew said, it it really does play like a comedic porno film, and they took out the sex scenes. Drew, we have an interesting film from a very reliable actor of this era. 
what can you tell us about Robert Redford in Brubaker? I'm the new warden here. My name's Henry Brubaker. He fights too hard. There's only one thing you do, and that's get people killed. He knows too much. How many men are buried out there? He's gone too far. He's crazy. Somebody needs to stop him. Robert Redford is Brubaker. Uh, this is a Stuart Rosenberg film, and um, that guy, you know, Cool Hand Luke might be his best known movie. Amityville Horror. I would argue his worst movie. Stop it. It's not even true. Yeah, it might be. Looking yeah. at Stuart Rosenberg's career, Amityville Horror is pretty near the bottom of his barrel. Probably his biggest hit, though. Uh, this was a TV guy. He uh, came out of TV like a lot of these directors that we're talking about right now. Um, but he made the jump with some really interesting films. He Cool Hand Luke. Uh, he did the April Fools. Uh, he worked with Paul Newman a lot. WUSA, uh, The Drowning Pool, Pocket Money. Um, he made a great Walter Matthau film called The Laughing Policeman. Yes. Um, and it's uh, and then a movie directly after this called The Pope of Greenwich Village that we'll get to very soon, Whoa. which I adore. Totally forgot he directed that. This one I think <laughs> is one of his least successful movies. It's and it, the part of the problem is that it's it's very preachy and it wants very much to be about a a big subject. Yes. Uh, but it's also beholden to the big movie star formula of the 70s where you, the movie star has to be untouchably flawed. And he's he's the guy that's going to get in there and barehanded solve all the problems. And, you know, if you read William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade, he talks about the dangers of writing for movie stars in this era. And one of the dangers is you get a movie like Brubaker where it's so weirdly weighted and so weirdly structured. And the film is built around uh, narrative surprise that was ruined for people in the trailers like Terminator 2. If you saw Terminator 2 with no advertising, nobody told you anything except that you'd seen the first film, you would probably think Arnold was the bad guy when he showed up in the movie. But the trailers made sure you knew going in that, no, no, not this time. He's the good guy this time. And here you do 30 full minutes, almost 40 minutes of this movie where Robert Redford is just a prisoner who gets processed into this prison. And it's a it's a brutal hellhole of a prison and when he gets uh, processed in he sees rape and murder and violence and he watches all of this and sees how sadistic the guards are and then 40 minutes in steps forward and reveals he's the new warden it's a nice surprise if you don't know the film all that well but i think the film would work considerably better if the audience knew going in that he was the warden and he was willing to go this far to see what life in his prison is like I think it came in an age where uh, a lot of people didn't know much about prison yet. And now in an age where we've seen Oz and we've had reality television, you know, showing us prisons nonstop. And I think we have a better sense of what prison is now than There's people ever did. a lot of prison movies in this era. There, there are. Yeah. And, but, it was, but it was the idea that they were pulling the, the curtain back on something that until then really hadn't been discussed. And so that's where I think the, the urgency of they're trying to make this a big issue movie comes from. And, you know, it was written by W.D. Richter, who I like a lot. Great genre uh, screenwriter, particularly. Director of uh, Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, the writer of Big Trouble in Little China, um, the writer of uh, the terrific remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, a really talented guy. And I can see how he wanted this script to work, but I, I don't think it ever figures out which version of the movie it really is. And as a result, it's really preachy in places. You do get some interesting supporting work. Yeah, Yafik yeah. Koto's really, really, really good in this. Morgan Freeman, his very first film appearance. Yeah, you nailed it, I think. You nailed something on the head. On one hand, it kind of wants to be like dark, fun prison movie, but it also wants to be a 
hot issue movie and Robert Redford's going to blow the lid off the corrupt prison system. And this is the kind of movie that's going to, you know, inspire congressional investigate it in as a conventional prison movie or as a Robert Redford vehicle. Not too bad. Watchable as a social commentary. I don't know if it works quite as well. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that they make so many easy and lazy choices. Uh, Casting Murray Hamilton as the face of corruption in a post-Jaws world is too easy. It's it's shorthand where some other film did all your work for you. Yeah, that's and I, true. And I don't, I don't, you don't do that. There comes a point at which you gotta not cast. Yeah, that you, that's guy when instead. you start casting Murray Hamilton as the completely sweet, nice guy. Yeah. that's what you do then. Yeah. You know, let's be fair. Nobody was quite as good at sleazy as uh, as Murray Hamilton. It is very fitting that we would go from a movie about prison to a movie that begins with one of our characters being released from prison. And our two lead characters spending the entire film desperately trying to avoid prison. And the film that we are discussing is, without question, I can speak for Drew, with one of not only one of the most entertaining films of 1980, but probably one of the most influential or impactful films of our childhood, John Landis's The Blues Brothers. Look, I, I am of that first generation of Saturday Night Live fans. I remember sneaking downstairs to watch Saturday Night Live through the banister from the stairwell where my parents were watching it. And I wasn't supposed to be up, but I would sneak down. And I remember seeing the Julia Child sketch with Dan Aykroyd cutting his finger off. And I remember seeing the B sketches. And <laughs> I just remember my parents laughing so hard and me wanting to understand what it was that that was just slaying them like that and becoming really fascinated by these guys. And so to watch them little by little make their way to film, I was desperately in love with all of them, desperately fascinated by what they were doing. The Blues Brothers, I had seen them on the, t- on the television, obviously. I'd seen the appearances they'd made. I had no idea what to expect from a film, though, about the Blues Brothers. And for me, I was in from frame one. The movie is so confident, and it does such a good job of painting a completely different world It is its own world and its own reality with its own rules, but it is a world that is just left of ours. So it is recognizable and fun and such a confident, well-built, immediately sure of itself movie that I found from the moment he steps out of that prison and that music begins. I'm in 100 percent. The uh, concept of we're going to go on a road trip to bring all the band back together because they want to raise money for their old orphanage. So already you've got a great comedy hook. You've got a great like road movie hook. You've got a great musical hook. It works as a dry farce. It works as a an action movie. It works as a wonderful musical. As a kid, I watched it because I loved Jake and Elwood and I loved car chases and car crashes. And then it introduced me to these R&B artists that I might not have discovered for 10 more years without this film. We have a lot of conversations now about cultural appropriation and, and people who uh, take other cultures and, and adapt them as their own. And the Blues Brothers are characters that make a statement about that. And it's an interesting one because when it's just them performing the songs on stage, as it was on Saturday Night Live, there's no context. It's just two white guys looking like old soul singers and doing old soul numbers. There's no real context here. We see that Jake and Elwood blues were orphans and they were raised in an orphanage and that the janitor, the handyman, the guy that kind of kept everything at the orphanage 
and took care of things, that's how he dressed. And that's the music that was important to him. And that's his, his background and his culture. And they're his kids. They are, in, in essence, they're his children. And, and he has passed this down to them. So it is their culture, too. And there's something beautiful about that and the way it's done in this movie. And Landis certainly doesn't belabor the point. I don't think the movie is ever trying to pull, oh. play on these sentimental heartstrings, but I think there's a real warmth to the way it's imagined. And that screenplay by Landis and Aykroyd, which notoriously they pulled sections out and they were restructuring and they were cutting and pasting and doing things with it. It's a great screenplay and there's so much that's fun about it. And look, we talk about the uh, archetype of the putting the band back together movie this is the putting the band back together movie of all putting the band back together movies. There is something great about each stop. We get a giant musical number from somebody totally different, and each stop is exciting and thrilling. For me, the James Brown number at the beginning, one of the all-time greats, uh, the Aretha Franklin number is a killer, and the Ray Charles number just rips the roof off the movie. John Landis, John Belushi, and Dan Aykroyd are saying... Everybody look at these performers. Look how amazing they are. No, I don't think it's there. They're not singing their songs for them. They're bringing Aretha Franklin and John Lee Hooker and, and you know, Cab Calloway and Ray Charles back to a, a very, very large audience. And it's a wonderful mixture of, of cultures. Well, more than that, the guys that are their, their, their band in this movie, these are the guys that played on the original tracks. These are the, the studio musicians who helped define the sound of that era. So, when you watch Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn uh, play these these roles in these this movie, these guys are the real guys. These are the guys that are on those original tracks. These aren't just guys that are aping something or emulating it. These are the guys that, that define and it. And nobody ever says to them, why do you guys love black music? They know, but it's not even an issue. It's like the, the absurdity or the mild, it's not so absurd now, but in 1980, the absurdity of a skinny and a fat white guy looking like that and playing mostly black music, that was odd at the time. And there's no, not only is there no apology for it, there's no explanation for it because it's not needed. We did an interview recently with a podcast called The Broken Projector, and we talked a little bit about Top Gun during that interview. And we talked about how that was a disc that got used as the uh, standard disc for home theaters for a while, uh, for VHS, then for Laserdisc. Like, that was the movie that a lot of people would put on just to show off a system. The term you're looking for, and I often forget it myself, is reference quality. Reference quality? Yes. <laughs> so that was the one. For me, going from VHS to Laserdisc, to DVD, to Blu-ray, the Blues Brothers has been my reference quality disc for sound. And without a doubt, it has remained one of the best mixed movies on home video through every format. When you play these musical numbers through a great system. Every one is, there's not a weak link in the bunch. It's, but it's unbelievably mixed. It is a beautiful sounding movie. Oh my God, the James Brown number. The way it is mixed uh, is it, just phenomenal. I, I love the car crash stuff. It is absurdly large. You know, you can't mention John Landis without the, the rest of the events of the 80s coming into it. And John Landis at this point was already reckless when he was making the movie. There's a shot in this film where Carrie Fisher blows up a phone booth and the guys are inside it. And John Landis insisted that they use actual TNT to blow up that phone booth. Even though his pyrotechnic guys told him that's not how we would do that. And John was like, no, I want TNT. I want that explosion. And the TNT explosion they did knocked out windows for four square blocks that they then had to apologize to the city for. Landis was just crazy. And he had this sense of bigger and more dangerous and better. 
And that's why the mall chase is unbelievable. They built a mall that was, it was basically shut down and wasn't going to be used anymore. They rebuilt it. They refilled it. And then they demolished it with a car chase inside a shopping mall. And it's fantastic. It is just utterly beautiful the way it's choreographed. And there's freeway chases where he crashes thousands of cars. This movie is gigantic. And it is John Landis cutting loose with all the budget and all the time and all the support that he ever needed to pull off this kind of mayhem. It's almost John Landis' 1941, except that it made more money and is a better film. It also has one of the most joyful, energetic moments of my entire life, particularly childhood. When they finally get to the concert, and they all look very ragtag and beaten down, and Cab Calloway goes out on the stage and introduces them, or they introduce Cab Calloway, and he is somehow, through the magic of movies, He's instantly looks like a star from the 1930s. It, it, the, the production design on the stage is now beautiful. And then you don't know, is that what the audience is really seeing? Or is that we're seeing the spirit of Cab Calloway as transformed through, through John Landis and his cinematographer? And then when they go in from Minnie the Moocher into Everybody Needs Somebody, and they're clapping hands and they're strutting up and down the stage, John Landis shoots that like a heartbeat. It is so beautiful. It is so visually arresting. It is so energetic watching the audience slowly come to life, watching their shadows in the spotlight dance with each other. It's joyous. It, rem it reminds me of being a child. It reminds me of what I love about movies. It's wonderful. Watch them, watch them win over a hostile country western oh. bar by playing the theme to Rawhide repeatedly yes. and Stand By Your Man and somehow making that crowd believe it's the greatest show they've ever simple, seen. Simple, simple joke, and it works so well. We'll wrap up. My favorite joke from this movie. It really only dawned on me later watching this movie how insane the setup and punchline is. But the movie opens, like you said, Jake's getting out of prison. Elwood picks him up. Elwood's got the new cop car. They drive around. They get hassled by the cops. They have the whole mall chase. They finally get home. It's the next morning almost. It's dawn. It's been crazy. They've been shot at. They've almost died. They get into the lobby of the place where Elwood lives. And as they step into the lobby, an old guy on the other side of the lobby yells out, Yo, Elwood, you got my cheese whiz? And Elwood goes, yep, pulls it out of his inner coat pocket and throws it to the guy. And it cracks me up so hard that this entire movie, this whole chase, all this chaos that's happened, Elwood's been carrying around this dude's cheese whiz that he picked up earlier. But something that small can be precious to me in that film. It's weird that I wouldn't necessarily call it a laugh-out-loud comedy because it's not that kind of set-up, huge punchline set-up. It's dryly funny. You'll chuckle a lot. But you will be smiling at all the musical numbers. The chemistry between Belushi and Aykroyd has never been better. It is one of the most impo important movies in my life. And if you've never seen the Blues Brothers, I would be elated if you would watch it for Drew and I and then hit us up on Twitter and let us know. I don't care if you're 14 or 50. If you've never seen this before, we want to find at least one or two people out there who've never watched the Blues Brothers and have watched it because of us. And we will be very grateful. Let us know what you think. Okay, and now we're on to our very last movie of the week. We can't keep going. Let's just do another hour on the this blues. Been, this has been just, I know, we could do all day. I know, no, like maybe if we end up doing a like top 10 of the year at the end, oh, yeah. we'll be able to bring up the we Blues were, Brothers we're, again. We're going to do a top 10, and you certainly will we'll each get our top 10 picks, and I'm very excited to see what yours end up as. Um, but we're going to move on to a movie that I am relatively sure will be on neither of our top 10 lists because it was so bad that the people who made the film tried to take their name off of it before it hit theaters. This is a film that was uh, partially bankrolled <laughs> by Mad Magazine, 
who at that point clearly wanted a little piece of the National Lampoon pie. Uh, and so Mad Magazine put some uh, effort into a, frankly, terrible military school comedy called Up the Academy. Mad Magazine presents Up the Academy, the school with courses in driver education, sports, history, special classroom instruction, any questions, and biology. Oliver! Mad Magazine presents Up the Academy, the comedy that's utterly mad. The Warner Brothers, rated R. Now playing. Check newspapers for local listing. It is crazy that this is a Tom Patchett J. Tarsus script because those guys were like gigantic sitcom they writers. For the, the Cosby 80s. show for years? They were for everything. They were like gigantic, gigantic comedy machines. And these guys were fairly reliable. This is ugly and homophobic and uh, racist. Racist is <laughs> all get out. Directed by Robert Downey Sr., Robert Downey Jr.'s father, obviously, um, who had made a real name as an underground filmmaker. This feels like an underground filmmaker making what he thinks a studio film is supposed to be. His contempt for studio films is worse than what a generic studio film version of this would have been. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, clearly meant to just ride on the coattails of Animal House. Notoriously, as Leonard Moulton Guide pointed out to me growing up, uh, Mad Magazine took their name off it. Ron Liebman, who plays the officious, uh, uh, bossy... Uh, villainous foil he's the dean wormer of this movie he ron liebman took his name off the movie and talked shit about it at any at, at every opportunity it's crazy because i mean his performance is one of the things that is ugly about the film it's a really broad weird garish yeah it's not a good performance i understand being embarrassed by it but it's his performance yeah yeah and you know there's almost you you can almost admire him for being one of the few people in the movie who's going full bore i mean he's really trying to give an over-the-top it's not a good performance but he's clearly trying he's not lazy in this movie one of the one of the weirdest things about this movie is one of the main kids a kid named oliver in the film years later when i was working at 20th century fox and i was taking notes for one of the executives there I was having this moment where I'm looking at him and it was really weirding me out because it was like, I've never met you before, but I feel like we've met. But I don't know who you are. And he started laughing and he said, "Uh, you ever seen Up the Academy? Hutch Parker, who was Tom Rothman's basic second, like his second in command during his time at Fox. Hutch Parker is the kid from Up the Academy. He had a different name back then, but he has copped to it and it's him. And it's bizarre because this guy is now a major player at Sony and has been a giant executive in Hollywood for years and years. Um, But it is part of a a larger trend that's happening. You know, we've got the shit kicker movies we talked about earlier in the episode. We've got the running away with the circus movies that were big in the 80s. This is part of the military school movies. And that was a real thing. And by military training and 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 then yeah, and then running head on into the teen sex comedies. I almost but it definitely overlaps a couple of major trends of the decade. Are you do you believe that I'm convinced that they went with military academy just for the like, oh, that's a clear difference between that and a normal college. Yeah. That's really the only reason. The military aspect rarely comes into it. Yeah. Uh, except in that it's more strict. And it's a high school, obviously, it's not a college. But um, I loved Mad Magazine growing up, and obviously I loved raunchy comedies growing up. And I don't remember exactly when I was able to finally track this down, but I don't know, was it on VHS? It was. And it's funny because, you know, the trailer that you can find on YouTube for this, 
uh, definitely still has Mad Magazine all over the trailer. It still says Mad Magazine presents. Alfred E. Newman uh, they, statue. They yeah. really went out of their way to try to get their name off that movie. So by the time it came out, their, their name was not on the final poster. Um, but the Alfred E. Newman mask was still in the film. And that was really the only way you knew it was still their film. It didn't play locally except for one week, and it was gone immediately, and there was no way my parents were going to take me. They hated Mad to begin with. Well, yeah, what's what's frustrating about the movie is that not only is it terrible, but it's not really Mad Magazine's kind of humor. Not at all. It was kind of a PG-13 level magazine. They would occasionally get suggestive or political or a little bit vulgar, but... Not like this. I would have thought that a Mad Magazine movie would be more like Airplane, where they're making fun of yes, other films. Yes, nonstop gags, rapid-fire gags, not just a smarmy teen sex comedy. But yes. grafted onto somebody else's structure, because that's what they did. They did parody. Yeah, they the did, parody. This yeah. is not a parody. This no. is a straight farce, and it's not a good farce, but you're right. You're exactly right. Mad Magazine should be a spoof. It should not be a ugly, an ugly sex farce. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, um, this has been uh, June of 1980. Uh, it is exciting to see you guys start to react to this series as, as we move through it. And um, I, I love the feedback we've gotten from you. Please continue to share uh, the, the show with people. The only way we're going to continue to grow this is if you tell other people to listen. Please. Yes. Uh, but if we would leave us comment or review on iTunes or hop on Twitter the only it doesn't matter how many Twitter followers Drew and I have. If people out there don't like the show and don't talk about it, then we're not going to bring in new listeners. So we really are relying. If you like the show, help us out and pimp it. And next month we've got a doozy. We've got um, one of the big ensemble comedies of the '80s, one of the great slobs versus snobs movies of all times. Ooh. We've got the uh, we've got a John Sales exploitation film that I adore. Love. We have got um, truly terrible Chevy Chase movie and maybe maybe my favorite Robert Zemeckis screenplay oh, I, so, I know what you're talking about and uh, yeah next month is going to be a ball thank you Drew it was fun doing it live and the sexual tension has just been it just, is we've just, been making palpable. out we've it's, been making out the whole time difficult to stay focused I'm not wearing pants One, two, three, four.